0: Please remain standing for the word of the Lord. Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.
1: Hey, you can be seated. Thanks, Mark. It's really good to um, to be with you this morning on a cold wet, wintry morning. We're here. We're online. We get to open God's Word together. We get to sing and proclaim these words of truth together. And um, I know it's been said, but I want to extend a welcome to you. My name is, is Adam, and I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here and get to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, I want to start just by opening up in prayer and inviting you to lean in. Whenever We get to do this and we get to open God's word. He is faithful to meet with us. So I wanna invite us just to bring our expectation to see what God has for us in his word. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Um, Thank you for today. Uh, Thank you that we get to gather here and online um, and we get to be your people. Um, We get to gather under the reality that you are good You are in control and you are present with us. And for that reason, we are marked with hope. And so today as as we open your word and we read from this passage in Luke and, and we think about what you desire for our hearts, the transformation and the life and the fruitfulness that you see and desire to come from us, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, would lead us, would guide us, would challenge us, would even give us a taste and a picture and a vision for the life that you desire for us. God, we are asking that you would not leave us the way that we came, but that you would morph and shape us and do what only you can do. And so we give you our attention, we give you our hearts, and we thank you in your name. Amen. So the last two years of of high school, um, my uncle and I started a, a side job, a side gig. I started a gig of um, putting metal roofs on homes, and it was hard work, but it was good work, and it was interesting work because of my uncle. He's that guy in our family, that person. You probably have that one person in your family where you're like, "Are you sure you belong with the rest? You're kind of out there." That's my uncle, and, and I'll tell you, this is all you need to know about my uncle. This is a true, not exaggerated story. My uncle has spent significant amount of his time in his adult years out in the desert attempting to catch an alien. <laughs> I feel you need to know that about my uncle for the rest of this to have any, any bearing But he's really good at roofing, very handy, and so there we were. We started this this side hustle, and we were going to put metal roofs on in the summer, and uh, we started into the work, and it was hard, and we had this one roof at the end of summer going into fall where it was starting to get cold that he wanted to try to rush and get it done. And so I show up at the site, and he wanted to be up on the roof working before the sun came up, which is lame especially when you're 16, 17. And my, my experience and my observation of the teenage brain is it, it doesn't really function at those wee hours of the morning. So we're there and we're, we're up on the roof and we're getting ready to do measurements. And it's a lot of measurements for the first couple of panels, because if you get the first ones on crooked, the rest are going to be a nightmare. And so we're up there with the tape measure and we're doing our work and I can barely Keep my eyes open, and we need to measure the top of the roof. We're at the very tip top. He gives me one end of the measure, the tape measure, and I start walking backwards so that we can do our thing. And I'm, I'm watching him. He's calculating. He's trying to figure out all the stuff. He's looking down, and he looks up at me, and he just says, "Adam, stop!" Man, that woke me up. That's rude. Do you see an alien or something? Like what's? Man, I'm, I'm here helping you. We come super early. I, why would you talk to me that way? He said, Adam, look at your feet. And I had one foot on the roof and I had frozen mid step. And as I looked down, there was no more roof left. I was about to step off the highest point of this roof, walking backwards. So suddenly, I realized the urgency in his messaging. He wanted to stop me in my tracks before destruction. We're in a, a series of chapters. We're following Jesus. We're listening to his conversations with people, with religious leaders. There's an urgency to his voice. In, in, in Luke chapter nine that, that we, uh, we got into before Advent, It says in the end of verse 51 that Jesus has resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There is a point where he is now going towards Jerusalem, and he knows that torture, abandonment, and the cross, and ultimately death are waiting for them. And this is the backdrop as he is going from village to village, approaching Jerusalem with an urgency in his message to tell his people, to tell God's creation, stop. You're on the edge of destruction. The way that you have lived is not leading to life. The kind of religion that you've settled into is a hollow and empty practice, and I want you to stop because I have something better for you, because I have life, because I see past the trappings of the outward life right to the heart, and I know what your heart needs and I want something better for you. There's an urgency in his messaging for the people who were listening to him walk on this earth 2,000 years ago, for us today, who find ourselves stuck maybe even in some of the same realities and practices that the people listening to Jesus and receiving his warning were hearing, that he has something better for us, that he wants us to be fully alive from the inside out. And so we step into this story um, in Luke chapter 13. It begins uh, by talking about these two kind of tragic events where life is lost, and they're the kind of events that, that when they happen, they become kind of social chatter. Everyone's talking about these things and and trying to make sense of these things, and and. And uh, someone asked Jesus about the events, and and it says this in uh, Luke 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you you too, you will perish. Or the 18 who died when the tower of Salome fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, I can't know. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Urgent, clear. And begins to talk about these events and, and Jesus is recognizing because he sees the heart. And he's exposing this form of religion, this practice, where the assurance is based on performance and comparison. When events like this happen, it's human nature to try to kind of wrap our mind around them, right? We, we do this. We have different sensibilities than people 2,000 years ago, but, but we kind of do the same thing. Oh, where, where did the breakdown happen? What was the motivation Oh, okay, that, that, that agency kind of let this situation happen. And then it makes sense because if I can justify and understand the tragedies around me, I can kind of buffer myself from them. And these people are attempting to do just that they're attempting to talk about these tra- tragedies in a way that makes them understand who God is and that. If God is punishing these people, these Galileans, and he's punishing these other uh, people in Jerusalem who the tower fell on, well, they must have deserved it. And there's a way that that we want to live in comparison to them to garner God's attention and favor and for that not to happen to us. So they're entering into this conversation with Jesus based on comparing and trying to understand why God is punishing some, why God isn't punishing others. And and in this comparison game, this formula game, this is how we relate to God instead of simple relationship. Jesus is exposing this. He sees this in their heart, and he's calling them to something better. We all know the feeling of of comparison, right? We we've grown up with it. Um, when you were in school, or maybe you are still in school, and you take a test, and you don't do so well on the test, but then you figure out and you hear that everyone else did poor, it makes you feel better, right? Or the opposite is true. When you didn't do well and everyone else did really good, you're like, Ugh, okay, I should have studied more. And we do this all the time. We do this with our with our finances, with our vocations, that I get a sense of my bearing in life, how I'm doing by kind of looking around and being like, "Ah, oh, I feel like I'm really far behind. Everyone else my age has this going for them and this, or... Or we do the opposite. We, we have an, an over-inflated self of confidence because we look around and think, oh, okay, well, at least we're not doing that poor, right? At least we didn't make that decision. What a wreck. These people are pulling that mentality into their relationship with their father. And Jesus wants to annihilate that practice and invite them back to relationship, invite them back to the work he's wanting to do in their heart, to turn away from a religion where proximity to God is a matter of posturing and comparison and not a matter of the heart. God wants to bring transformation into our lives through our heart. I don't know where this phrase came from. I've heard it for, for many years and I love it, but from I've heard it for, but God wants to do something through us, but He first wants to do something in us. That he wants to bring around transformation that isn't outward, that isn't just on the outside. A matter of comparison, a matter of saying, well, I've, I've improved this behavior, I've got this down, at least I'm not failing in those ways. So, so God probably is accepting me. I went through a lot of years, um, especially in my late teenage years, feeling like I was in the shadow of my older brother. I called him the golden boy. He's the worst. He- <laughs> He can speak three languages. He's had, like, an amazingly successful career, uh, can do athletic, does all the things, right? And I call him Goldie, not to his face. But felt like for many years, my parents were always measuring me compared to him. Because as I went through the years, um, a handful of years behind him, I felt like I never quite hit the marks that he hit. Whether that was academics, whether that was sports, whether that was um, being popular and then in his career and and just everything. And and feeling like my parents' attention, my parents' affection towards me are affected by how I'm relating to this relationship. Then one day I realized, I think I do this with God. I think sometimes I can look at how God has blessed other people and I feel like, God, why, why didn't you bless me that way? Man, God, that would have been really good if you would have done that in my life, like you did for them. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad, I guess, that you did that for them, but, but I, I feel missing out. Or, God, I wish I could experience you the way people do in some of the books that I read. And Why don't you meet me that way? God, I, I, I want this. I, or, or maybe, God, I'm so glad you do this for me. I, I don't know that you're doing this for other people. And I remember this moment of clarity, of realizing God could not possibly be more mindful of me. He could not possibly offer me more of his attention and his love than what he already has. I don't need to gain his attention. I don't need to gain his affection towards me. I need to grow at recognizing it. I need to grow at seeing it. And the place that that happens is my heart the very place that he wants to do his work. I love this quote by, by Timothy Keller, and it, it won't be on the screen behind me, and I'll, I'll read it a few times. It's a simple quote, but just listen. God sees us where we are, loves us where we are, and accepts us where we are. But, but by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. God sees us, He loves us, he accepts us where we are, but by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. Jesus is present with these people who are stuck in this form of religion that isn't bringing life into their heart. He sees them where they are. He loves them where they are. He's met them where they are, but he's not gonna leave them there. What does he tell them two times? repent repent don't try to manufacture some sense of of worth before god or confidence before god because these tragedies have happened in other places stop that repent if you were here on um new year's day uh, we had an epic brunch you might remember and we, we talked about stepping into this new year um through this practice of repentance and, and, and really looked at this, this New Testament biblical word of repentance, that it's more than just saying you're sorry. The word metanoia, it actually means to shift belief, to stop believing one thing, to confess, God, I am believing incorrectly on this. I'm believing opposite of who you are in your character and what you say is true. And so I am, I am moving from that. I'm repenting of that. And I'm choosing to believe your truth, what you say. And so Jesus is leading for these people is repent. Turn from that belief of posturing, of compromising, of comparing with one another. Turn from that belief and turn to the belief that your, your father is present and he loves you. You don't need to garner his affection or his attention. He wants to do a work in your heart that leads to fruitfulness. A repentance a changing of belief that leads to fruitfulness of the heart. You might remember um, this kind of being thematic throughout Luke. Jesus calling people to repent and to be fruitful, and his his first kind of public ministry experience in Luke chapter three verse eight. He tells these religious leaders, produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, out of stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. He's telling them over and over, man, you're, you're one step from falling, from destruction. Stop it. Repent from these faulty beliefs. Repent from this, this empty practice of religion and turn towards your father. Turn towards God. The heart of this text is Jesus calling his creation back to himself. And not just on the outside, not just at a custom level. He wants their heart. So he tells them repent, repent and believe. Repent and shift belief towards God. And then he goes on to tell this this parable. Starting in verse 6, it says Then he told this parable a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went out to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who takes care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it, and I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Jesus tells this story, and um, throughout Luke and the other Gospels, there's a lot of stories about agriculture and vegetation, and, and that sometimes can be a little bit lost on us. I, I know most of the people of Mosaic, I don't think I know any farmers. You might be here. Cool, I'd love to meet you. But for most of us, our experience with vegetation is a, is a little different. I've, I've got a favorite plant, it's hanging in my office, it's a stag fern horn, and it's, it's an epic, beautiful plant. And I know it's an epic plant, because this is my second one. I had one and someone stole it, right? Someone stole a plant, who steals a plant? It means it's awesome. So now I have a second one my family bought for me to console my loss of my first one. And it's, it's beautiful. It makes me smile in my office when I look at it. I care for it. I water it in the sink once a week. And I put my blinds down so that the evening, afternoon sun hits it. And, and I love this little bit of vegetation. But beyond just looking at it, it doesn't actually produce anything. I'm told that it makes the oxygen better in my office. Great. It's a hobby. It's an interest for me. But as Jesus is talking his first century audience about vegetation, about a fig tree producing and not producing, for them, this is a matter a matter of life. This is a matter of their next meal and where their food is coming from. And it is critical that what is planted in the soil produces life, that it produces fruit, it produces vegetation that can nourish and strengthen us. And so he tells this story, and in this story, the owner of the vineyard where this fig tree is planted comes out, and he, he's looking for fruit. And he sees none. Now, I just think it's important when we talk about fruit. It's important when we talk about this, this analogy that the Bible has that's talking about what our lives and what our heart is producing that we distinguish the order and the way that this happens. It's actually a brilliant analogy because fruit growing on fruit trees is the most natural thing in the world, right? Apples growing on apple trees is natural. Apple trees aren't striving to push this fruit out. It's what they were created to do. They have soil, water, sun, everything God has given in his creation for them. They just exist and produce fruit, it's the most natural thing. When we get this order reversed and we say, based on my own will and ability, I'm going to produce this fruit that will make me accepted by God, we enter into a life of striving. The fact is, I'm not very good at changing my own life because authentic change happens when belief changes. The practices of my life are hard to change until I change what my heart is set on and what I believe. Otherwise, we step into toil. I love this. This is in Psalm 127. It's such a beautiful picture. And, and, and this is actually from the, the ESV, the English Standard Version. I just love the, the way it's worded here. But it says this, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Please hear me and hear the heart of this parable that Jesus is teaching. This is not an invitation to be eating the bread of anxious toil. For us to say, we have to figure out how to fix our lives because this is what God wants. This is an invitation to invite God into the forming of our heart. And fruit becomes the most natural thing in the world. And so in this story, the owner comes out and he looks at the fig tree. For three years, it's sat in the soil. It's taken up space. It's taken up nutrients. It's had sun. It's had water. No fruit. So the owner of the vineyard says, cut it out. We're wasting the soil, we're wasting the space. Some of this, this urgent language that Jesus is communicating. It's planted in soil, it's existing here, it's not producing. It's not doing what it was created to do. It's reminding us that our lives are finite. And it doesn't always feel like that. Some days feel long, some seasons feel long, some years feel long, and then one day you wake up and you're 41, you're like, how did that happen? That felt really fast. Our life is finite. The mass of the wealth that we're able to, to accumulate and, and, and store up, someday it's not really gonna matter to us. The adventures that we can have, the memories that we can have a generation or two when we're gone, they're gone. The thing that matters most It's for us in the soil that we're planted to produce a fruit, a way of living, a way of engaging with the world around us that is everlasting. This is what we are created to do, to produce this fruit that comes from the transformation of heart that God has for us. So the owner says to the gardener, cut it out. This is my favorite part gardener intervenes the gardener who's actually the one teaching who's actually the one sharing this parable who's actually the one that saw his beloved creation one step away from destruction and stopped them he intervenes and he says wait let's let's try some more let me dig around this plant let me nourish this plant let me love this plant let me give it everything i have let me come to this plant let me teach let me heal this plant let me do miracles for this plant so they can see that i'm i'm the son of god let me bring fertilizer in let's try let's give this plant time and jesus is extending grace the gardener the tender of souls he wants to come To fertilize this plant. Now fertilizer uh, in the first century, it's it's actually manure. It's not very fun. I remember when I was uh, probably five or six, we were working on our yard. We had a huge yard and my dad wanted to plant a lot of grass and this huge dump truck showed up and dropped off the biggest amount of dirt I'd ever seen. I was at the window watching, thinking this is the best day of my life. This is a mountain of dirt. My imagination was running wild as soon as the dump truck left. I was so excited. I went and got my Ninja Turtles, my Mashbox cars. I went out there and after about three seconds of playing in this dirt, I realized this is not dirt. This stinks. What is happening? It was manure. It's unpleasant and it's completely necessary because it works its way into the soil and it breaks up the hard places and it nourishes. Jesus is bringing a hard truth. He's bringing it to these people listening. He's bringing it to you and I And, and, and hard truth, it's a little unpleasant sometimes, but it's absolutely critical when it works its way into our heart and breaks up those rough patches to bring nourishment so that we can respond to his invitation for us to have life. The gardener of our hearts, he's bringing us these words, this warning. Turn away from all these places that you're looking for meaning in life because you were created by God. You're meant to find your home. Your heart is meant to find its home in him. So turn, repent, turn from those beliefs and turn towards him. I have two, um, two responses that I wanna invite us into um, this morning. The first one is, uh, it's already been put before you, but, but thinking about this season that's right before us, Mosaic, um, the invitation to be present tonight, the invitation in this Lent season, the invitation over the next several months to lay our heart bare before God, to look like the story of this fig tree and say, is is there fruit? Man, what's what's going on in the soil of my heart? Maybe that's really hard. Maybe that's really scary or intimidating. Maybe the last time you looked, it's pretty messy. And now you, you just kind of try not to look at it. The gardener of your soul is gentle. He teaches and he guides. My, um, my youngest daughter, when she was a little bit younger and probably still now, can make a mess like no one's business. I, it's supernatural what she can do to her bedroom. It's like, what? how is this even possible? So, like, we can't live like a feral animal, so I tell her, you gotta clean this mess. It's so bad that, that she'll go in there and just get overwhelmed. She'll start to cry. And it, it, it's, it's too much, she doesn't, she doesn't even know where to start. So I come in there, I sit her down, and I say, it's okay, sweet. Let's start with one thing. Let's start with just the toys and being present with her, helping her, we begin to put it back together. You might feel like your heart is so messy, you don't even know where to start. There's been hard places, broken places, thorn and thistle where the junk of this world has made its way into your heart, where you've looked for what only God can provide in other places, and you're, you're feeling the effects of that, where people have hurt you or disappointed you, where there's been stress and anxiety in your heart. It feels like a messy room. Jesus, the gardener, he's present with you. He's gentle. Stone by stone, he'll help you. Thistle by thistle, he'll be present with you. My invitation for you today, lean into this next season. I know this to be true. God wants to do something significant in your heart. He does. There's no question in my mind. Will you lean in? Will you be bold enough to even show him the messy places or the confusing places and say, be the gardener of my heart, to lean into the season. The second invitation I have is for us um, at these tables. This is something we get to do uh, week after week, and it seems especially um, relevant today in in talking about the work of the heart. Because one of the ways that, that we can see this table is it's actually a place of of some kind of commerce, of, of trade. My, um, my family loves to go in the summertime to the farmer's markets. We have one big one in Vancouver. And uh, it's, it's fun. Why, why go to the grocery store and pay 40 cents for an apple? Well, you can buy that same apple outside for a dollar. It's, it's magical. <laughs> but we go, and there's all these tables set up, and on the tables is all these goods, and there are things that, that maybe you want the things that maybe you need, and, and it goes something like this you come to the table and they have what you need and you bring what you have to offer and you give them something of value and they give you something of value. And and these tables in a similar way are a place of exchange. This problem. We don't really have something of value. What we have is our brokenness. That's what Jesus takes. Scripture tells us that He returns life when we surrender our death to Him. It's the most incredible exchange of your life. So I want to invite you today as we, we come to these tables, and, and it represents Christ's body broken, it represents His blood. Sp- spilt in Jerusalem, this place that he is on his way going and he's warning and calling everyone to repentance on his way there. That's what these elements represent. And I wanna invite us as we come to these tables today to think, about, to think about the soil of your heart. And just start with one place, one stone, one thistle that you recognize, that it's made its home in your heart. It doesn't belong and God has something better. And as you come to this table and take these elements, I actually want you to name it before God. God, I'm I'm struggling with lust. God, my heart is eaten up with comparison and greed. God, my heart is eaten up, I'm struggling with racism. God, these stones have found their way into my heart and they don't belong and I'm gonna name them and bring them to you as an exchange for the life this text, in his message, even in its urgency, in its sharp edges. He wants life where there's death in our hearts. Father, thank you for your word, that it is true, it is powerful, and it always produces uh, the fruit of new reality in us. So I pray uh, that your spirit we come to this table. You would help us even know our hearts, the places of our hearts that we don't see even if we we don't even know how to think about our hearts, that you would be our, our, our guide, our supernatural guide to lead us and that we would be bold enough to name the broken, the stones, the thistle, the hard places in exchange for your life.